Cowabunga, dear listeners, and welcome to <laughs> Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tapeheads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection, we watch it, and then we talk about it. Lindsay, what did you pick out for this episode? I picked out Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie. The 1990 original, right? Yes, yes, live action. This is not animated. Yes, although something happened when we uh, <laughs> when we sat down to watch the first movie. We were sort of talking while it was going on, as we sometimes do, and we both kind of slowly realized that the movie that we really remember from our childhoods, just both independently, was the second in this series, The Secret of the Ooze. Well, we didn't really realize that until we decided to start Secret of the Ooze. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, we, we watched a little bit of the second one, and I think that for some reason, maybe because it's sort of aged down, the second one, it's a little yeah. lighter. I mean, we'll talk about that, but it's a little lighter. It's more aimed directly at kids. Mm-hmm. I definitely remember in my house that we would watch the second one a lot. In my house, we watched the second one and unexpectedly the third one a lot, which the third one was the one everyone hated. So. Yeah, it, yeah. So, so basically, what happened was <laughs> we originally were going to do an episode on just the first movie, but then we thought, oh, maybe we should include the second one. And then at that point, we thought, oh, well, we might as well do the third one to make it a, a full trilogy episode. Essentially, we wanted to watch all of the movies, and now we can't talk about the first one without talking about the others. Yeah. So, so we're doing a little bit. Of a triple header today, which means that Lindsay has found a way to have three children's movies loaded with trailers and commercials. Not loaded. Uh, well, not loaded. Furthering your lead in our ongoing trailer wars, I think uh, I've dug myself a hole that I can never dig out of unless I only do Disney movies from now on. Before we get into this, though, I was sort of curious: what was your relationship with these characters growing up like? I know for me, the cartoon was kind of what first got me onto them. Well, the cartoon yeah. and the, the movies. I actually, of... I actually didn't know. I only found out as an adult that there's a comic book, which I still haven't read. I just haven't had a chance or really the interest to look into it. But I grew up with these movies. I was obsessed with these movies. I would watch the animated show on TV, but then I also had a bunch of the tapes that we would watch, my brother and I, because he was also really into it. We loved Ninja Everything. That's why Surf Ninjas was my first (laughs) pick for this podcast. Yeah, you know, I feel like everyone has that cool friend that was like, man, I read the black and white Ninja Turtle comic books, and they were so much more violent. I feel like there's always, like, one person that says that, but I feel like pretty much everyone sort of cut their teeth on the cartoon or, or maybe the movies um, mm-hmm. and didn't find out about the comics much later. Um, to my surprise, I was kind of learning how much these original comics, um, they were done by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. No relation to Philip Laird. I was amazed how much they actually inspired the first movie because the I what I'd always heard was that the the cartoon was a massive hit in the late 80s and really aged it down. It was definitely mm. aimed at kids, whereas the comics were grittier. But this first movie is very gritty and is in, seems to be informed more by the comics than people give it credit for. 
I think this is something that having watched it as a kid, I just never noticed. And then I just constantly repeat watch the second one and the third one. So I didn't really, having as an adult, having watched them in sequential order and being able to kind of compare them, you, you realize how much darker the first movie is. Growing up, I also had a bunch of the cartoons on VHS and... One and two were the ones that we had. I think we were rented three, but I just... Me and my sister just weren't into three when we were younger. We <laughs> probably saw it once or maybe twice and just never went back to it. But yeah. one, two especially, Secret of the Ooze was was the big one in our house. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was very curious to give that one a watch. And I'm, I'm glad we kind of ran through this whole series and are sort of doing this triple episode. I think the cartoon kind of informed the version of the turtles that we're most familiar with. That they love pizza that was invented by the cartoon, that Michelangelo's this party dude, that (laughs) April's a TV reporter, that they have color-coded bandanas. Like, these Mm -hmm. are all staples of the cartoon, not the comics. But I think that this uh, first movie, I mean, the the sequel's not so much, uh, kind of seemed to have taken more of a cue from the comics, that they're a little, it's a little grittier, it's a little darker. Yeah, so speaking to the turtles' love of pizza, there was an ad for pizza at the beginning of the first movie, which the ad was kind of weird because it felt like a movie trailer. It looked like they were advertising some kind of kid's baseball movie. Yeah, it felt like the Sandlot to me. It's sort of like this song about this kid who's stuck in right field. Mm -hmm. And I guess when you're a kid playing baseball, balls just don't go out that far. And so he's just kind of waiting around by the weeds and he catches the ball, like this fly ball, and wins the game. And the whole team gets to go to a pizza party at, get this, Pizza Hut. Aw, yeah. Interestingly, Pizza Hut spent $20 million on promotions and advertising surrounding uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. More than the budget of the actual film. More than the budget of the movie. And what this this really gets me is uh, Pizza Hut is not featured in this movie, but Domino's is. Yeah, the turtles actually eat Domino's. Yeah, this is such a strange promotion to me. I mean, maybe Pizza Hut was just hoping you wouldn't notice that, but... Uh, I guess not. They sure put a lot of money into this uh, production. But that was an ad that every kid could relate to, because I remember playing soccer as a kid and then going out to eat pizza after. And then after the credits, the only other trailer um, was for the cartoon version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was really at the peak of its popularity in, I guess, 1990 when this first movie came out. For those of you who don't remember, this movie kind of focuses on a gang called The Foot that has a bunch of kids working in it. They've taken these kids who are just bored with their lives and they want to really rebel against their parents. And so they have kind of set up this organized crime pickpocketing ring where they're going around and robbing people and the the movie starts out with this kind of edgy cool music in New York City and you see somebody take a wallet out of someone else's pocket and that wallet just keeps passing down through a bunch of hands until you finally get to the criminal's lair. I love the way that crime in New York is portrayed in this movie because it does sort of have that like gritty uh, 
pre-Giuliani feel of, like, Death Wish or uh, The Warriors, where there's, like, these multi-ethnic street gangs that are out there, and the streets are always wet and empty, and smoke is pouring out of every sewer grate, but they're there to pick your pocket, because this is a kid's movie at the end of the day. But you know this kid has gone bad, because he's wearing a black t-shirt that says Sid for Sid Vicious on it. Yeah, he's really a bad kid. That's... I'm also, that's the only shirt it's that shirt and he has one other Sid Vicious shirt that he wears for the entire movie even though we're supposed to assume days are passing right yeah this kid Danny we should talk about a little bit because seen through his eyes this is actually kind of a harrowing movie he's the son of the basically the head of a news channel who's kind of getting disaffected from his dad He's running away from home. He's taken up with this, like, sort of Lost Boys-style gang of kids mm-hmm. that that gets to basically do whatever they want. It's, it's a real, like, Peter Pan-type thing. Nobody wants to grow up, but it's almost like their version, or not their version, but their idea of what being a grown-up is. Like, you get to do whatever you want. You can play games with them you want. They're drinking all the soda they want. Some of them are smoking. But the cost of this, though, is that they have to pledge loyalty to the Shredder, the fearsome ruler of the foot, and they have to steal for him, they have to uh, put on these crazy ski masks with bug eyes, and they have to basically terrorize the city and do whatever the Shredder commands them to do. To me, it's almost like an allegory of, well, I mean, a very obvious allegory of, like, joining a really serious street gang and thinking it's really cool at first that these people are your friends, but then slowly realizing that you're trapped, you know, like almost like the mob or something. But kind of not to be too political, but the early 90s was really concerned with this kind of thing of kids being pulled into organized crime and being used, kids killing other kids and that sort of thing. Well, and a lot of it was really happening, especially in New York. So they really kind of hitting on something real, which is interesting when you realize that this is a show based on a comic book, based on a cartoon about mutant turtles. <laughs> yeah. So these guys aren't just pickpocketing because this kind of transitions to us seeing April are not a sidekick, but she's a character that befriend ends up befriending the turtles who's a reporter. And so she's reporting on the foot. And then as she leaves the news office, she ends up getting mugged outside and is saved by the turtles. Yeah. And it's interesting the way that shot, because it's sort of in the dark. I think this, this movie was around the same time of the Tim Burton Batman, which is a monster hit. So it's kind of shadowy when they first attack. You don't really mm-hmm. see them. And we're supposed to believe that these turtles, they're ninja level. Like, they're able to just zip in and out. Nobody knows what's really happened. People are just knocked down and tied up, and she's totally fine. But she kind of sees one of them, right? Yeah, well, Raphael loses his sigh. Oh, that's basically. right. And he screams about it down in the <laughs> sewer because he's the angsty one of the bunch. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because we, we have this kind of shadowy open and I thought to myself, like, is it going to take a while before we really get a good look at these turtles? Like, is it sort of a Jaws thing uh-huh. where we, they, we wait an hour before? But then it's like, <laughs> cut to, no, they're they're down in the sewers trading different adjectives uh, for cool. You know, one says radical, one says awesome. And just right away you get a lot of these turtles. But you know that... 
You know Donatello's kind of the lame, bookish one, because he's always the one that's using big words that aren't cool enough to be cool. Yeah, voiced by Corey Feldman in all of these movies except (laughs) the second one. And it's something to behold, Corey Feldman voicing a turtle. But also, interesting note, all of the turtles, so there are four turtles. Raphael, the red bandana turtle, is the only one where the actor in the suit and the voice are the same. In the first film, yes. Just in Um, the first film. He unfortunately didn't come back, even though he was great. Yeah, Josh Pice, who kind of steals the show for me in this first movie, he plays Raphael, who, you know, I mean, if you were just to summarize these turtles in... It's like Leonardo's kind of the lame leader that doesn't have much of a personality. Michelangelo's the pizza-loving party dude. Donatello's the smart one. But Raphael was always kind of the the sarcastic one and the kind of the angrier, edgier one. The one that they couldn't cool down. He was always ready to fight and always on the edge. Yeah, and so it's appropriate for this kind of gritty first movie that he's really the focus. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really great choice. And it was a great choice to cast Josh Pice, who kind of brings that, like... He's the one with sort of this hard Brooklyn accent, and he's the one who goes off on his own in a trench coat to kind of do whatever he wants. But there's actually a really interesting interview with him about his experience on the film uh, in a podcast called I Was There Too. And it's interesting because he talks about having been walking down the street in New York afraid of getting mugged and that sort of thing. Like, he lived through some of what this movie kind of looks at as that underbelly. Because these costumes were like 70 pounds, you really had to really have bring a physicality to these suits. Kind of an exaggerated physicality. And one of the things that Josh Pice seems to have done is kind of project this, like, I'm the king of the streets kind of walk. <laughs> and it was because he brought this personality to it that he's the only actor to both do the body as Lindsay was saying and the voice Mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately he didn't come back for the sequels which is a shame because Raphael's really the star of this first movie I really want to know why like did he just hate it or did they not want to pay him enough or because this this is a series that sees a ton of turnover in actors yeah I mean just for starters April O'Neil is played by a different actress in two and three the only consistent voices are Leonardo and Michelangelo because um, Corey Feldman sat out the second movie. But yeah, it's, and it's a different Raphael for each movie. Yeah, uh, Splinter is different. In the uh, third one, yeah. Yeah, and Shredder, Shredder changes in both the first and the second one. Yeah, there's this crazy turnover in cast. But then again, when I was a little kid, I didn't really notice I never lot, noticed. I which actually is really had bad. no idea. I'm not even sure if I noticed it was a different April. And those women... <laughs> look nothing alike they really don't and i honestly i i i do not believe that i had any idea but then we also there's a character that falls into the water to his death in the third film and i never noticed that he just they just cut the frame like he just disappears and then they make a splash sound and the water is exactly the same i never noticed that he doesn't actually go into the water that was so (laughs) awful even though it was 1992 like i feel like they could have done a better job with like that matte painting heading towards the water and then disappearing 
hearing with the I, splash sound. It just it was that when I saw that and I realized how gullible and innocent children are when they watch things that I just kind of jumped into the fantasy of that movie. Yeah, I mean we'll get to the third movie, but man, they could have used some of that Pizza Hut money on that one <laughs> for some of those things. Oh god. But yeah, you know, this first film I feel like is really strong. It has some elements that I really find fascinating. It's it's weird because it's almost like a gritty reboot to a series that never existed. <laughs> like, it's the first movie in this series, but it does feel like a second wave. Like, it feels like Casino Royale or Batman Begins in that it's, like, really making a point to be like, no, this is serious. These are, se- I mean, like, there's a little bit of that. They don't use the catchphrase cowabunga until the very end. Very pointedly, Splinter says it. So it's kind of like the end of Casino Royale when it's like, yes, he finally says Bond, James Bond. Yeah. It's funny, too, because, um... I feel like having watched all three helped me really love the first one as an adult right now. Like, I I enjoyed it so much in contrast to the others. The first one, I feel like, is really intended for different audiences. It's not really a children's movie. No, it's not. Kind of like the Tim Burton Batman was later kind of aged down with, like, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Like, a similar thing happened here, but much, much quicker. I think they also took the teenage part of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles pretty seriously and made this more for teens, so that it helped it span age groups a little better. Yeah. But this is this was a movie, too, where I kind of forgot. I remembered all the action and the jokes and stuff, but I kind of forgot that they really take the... Um, they really emphasize kind of the human relationships as well between the different characters, and you see character development. Like, we see Raphael kind of struggling with his rage really kind of how to connect and work with the others. You see, you don't really see much character development for the other three turtles, but you do for, like, there's a, vi- a vigilante that comes in later uh, called Casey. Casey fam- Jones is great. Who in famously this. wears a hockey mask and hits people and beats them up with a hockey stick. Kind of a connection between him and April that that's looked at. It's just a, it kind of, it surprised me because there was more to it than I remembered for sure. Oh, yeah. With Casey Jones, uh, Elias Cotez plays him and it's cool because he's kind of doing this De Niro sort of tough guy (laughs) thing all through the movie and he's really important to this because he's not a character for children but what he shows that's so important for this first movie is he's a vigilante who's taking it a little bit too far Mm -hmm. like he's kind of drawing like a moral line between him and the turtles who like understand that they're there to fight crime but they know when to like let up and just let the cops take over yeah because there's this confrontation i i'm assuming in central park between Raphael, who's trying to kind of walk off his anger and happens to see some purse snatchers right and so he beats the purse snatchers up a little bit knocks them over a fence and then throws the purse back to someone and to him it's done like okay he stopped the crime he beat them up a little bit he did his job, time to walk away, but then Casey's hiding in the bushes and is telling <laughs> and is telling these two teens that are pre- presumably members of the foot, hey, it's time for pain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to destroy you because your piece is a garbage and you need to learn a lesson. Like, that's his approach to life is just, I'm going to 
beat the hell out of you until you learn to do better. Yeah, and, and we sort of get an idea of Raphael's character in that he sort of fights on behalf of these kids that he just yeah. beat up. Because he decides that, Casey is the bad guy. Yeah. He's also just, looking for a fight, but he's always looking for a fight. I just feel like this whole world is a little better realized than the other mm-hmm. films in that you kind of understand the allure of being in the foot. Like, I yeah. get it why these kids are doing this. Like, they're runaways. They get to be in this cool subterranean arcade where they can drink soda and smoke cigarettes all day. Well, and they're being taught to fight, too, because yeah. they're, they're sort of the army of the foot, right? They're Shredder's minions. Yeah, the a part that my dad would always quote growing <laughs> up is when uh, the Shredder's like main sidekick would uh, bring some of these new foot recruits down to the kind of arcade level, and he's like, "Go play." So I I don't know. I feel like the other movies, I don't really get why the bad guys are doing what they are doing, which is more of like a a, a children's thing. Yeah. Um, well, because they don't have to really explain it much. Where this this movie takes the time to actually show you more in depth what's going on yeah this is just a darker more violent movie and that i think that caused a lot of controversy at the time of its release like they use their weapons a lot the i mean it's both literally and figuratively dark like there's a lot Mm. of shadows there's a lot of humor and fun to it also there are a couple instances of violence i can think of or at least kind of um in one case implied violence and one and another actual very disturbing violence but there's one point in the movie where splinter gets kidnapped and he's being held hostage in um sort of the foot's headquarters and you can tell he's really in bad shape you're thinking man this guy might die he's hanging by chains and he's a really elderly giant mutant rat (laughs) yeah so you're feeling bad for him and that watching that i kind of it was more heartrending than i remembered too and Um, a lot of that comes from jim henson's workshop did all the puppetry for splinter kevin clash who was the elmo puppeteer for a long time is the voice and operator for splinter and just, like, so much humanity comes through these, like, bizarre creatures thanks oh, yeah. to that work. No, they did a fantastic job. But that that was something that I kind of realized as an watching it as an adult. It was much more kind of real than I think I ever connected with as a child. And it's funny because, like, parents' groups complained about the violence in this movie. The sequels are just as violent. It's just that they add goofy sounds so that there's really yeah. no stakes to it. Like, I'd say that the most harrowing moment in this movie for me was when one of the kids, like, gets beaten almost to death. I think in an early cut of the movie, he really did die, but later in, they added in, in post, like, a line like, oh, he's still alive, like, and, like, breathing sounds. That, I think, children should see to understand kind of, like, the, the weight of, like, getting wrapped up in a gang. Like, I think that that's kind of a valuable thing to learn rather than, like making bowling pin sounds when a bunch of guys get knocked over like i don't know it has more weight to it it shows consequences to what you do like yeah you can learn to fight but you're supposed to defend yourself not victimize others that kind of thing like they very much show that contrast the other instance of like extreme violence that (laughs) that really stands out in my mind is at the end of the movie shredder gets knocked off the roof and he falls into a dump truck, and then Casey just kind of goes, oopsies, and hits a button and <laughs> crushes him to death. 
in the in in this garbage truck and it's just like you see his his helmet get smashed and it's really kind of disturbing yeah yeah that was that's pretty badass <laughs> <laughs> which makes it all the more jarring going into this second film oh um, yeah well i guess we should take a quick break to uh talk about these trailers that we get at the beginning of oh, secret yeah. of the use the the first trailer is a BK Kids Burger King Kids trailer <laughs> or commercial. I'd, I remember say. this commercial, and I remember it too because we were watching it. it. Has these animated kids like zipping around? They're really cool, and there's even a, like there's a kid in a in a wheelchair, and the kids are really diverse. And it was very consciously ninety early nineties late eighties. But it was funny because I was looking at those characters and I remembered all of them. It's funny because it's very like a nineties kind of diversity because it's like look we got a black kid and a kid yeah. in a wheelchair you could tell they were and counting. a nerd yeah. <laughs> it's like that's not a, yeah. that's not a minority you could tell they were very very aware of counting on their fingers to make sure they got the right quota in and i think there's just one chick in the bk kids crew also probably i can't remember um then we get uh yet another hulk hogan commercial because oh, this is a new line and he just was pumping these out Suburban Commando, uh, co-starring Christopher Lloyd. Which looked awful. I didn't, I've never seen it. I've seen that trailer, but I've never seen that movie. Hulk Hogan just seems to have had a lot of really bad 90s family comedies. <laughs> and then the last one is a real curio. It's called Step Kids. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was only the title at the... That was like the working title of yeah. this like kind of kids family movie. It was eventually given the much worse title, Big Girls Don't Cry, dot, 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 They Get Even. Which is such an, a clunky title. But it, it was kind of a mess of a trailer too, because I still am not quite sure. I, I guess they went out on a family trip to a cabin and they're their families marry together like the Brady Bunch and they don't get along. That's all I can get from, all I was able to glean from the trailer, but what was I it? I felt exhausted just watching the trailer. Like, yeah. it's... The, the Savage Brother that was in Boy Meets World was in this movie. So, what's funny is if you go to the IMDb entry for Stepkids, or excuse me, uh, Big Girls Don't Cry, They Get Even. In the trivia, the top ranked bit of trivia is... Most people know this movie from the VHS tape of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. I loved that. But then we get into the movie. I, I kind of know why I loved this one, this, this second movie, so much as a kid. And it's because it starts out with the lead from Surf Ninjas. Yeah, Ernie, Ernie Reyes Jr. Jr. What, a, what a smiling, happy kid this guy is. He's, he's delivering a pizza... But he kind of hears some kind of kerfluffle in the mall, and he catches guys from the foot. Now wearing like stuff. they're wearing like pantyhose over their head. Are they really the foot? Like they oh, almost they look, like the foot. They're like fake foot. Up. But yeah, this this opening is really memorable to me too. Even this like montage of New York, where it might be the only thing they really shot in New York, but it just goes around the city to different people chewing off long stretches of cheese off yeah. their slices of pizza to uh 
to 80s music. Because I was going to say, it's only a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie if there's a lot of references to pizza, but that's not true of the third film, which we'll get to later. <laughs> yeah, no pizza in that movie for some reason. Yeah, this this opening mall fight is very memorable to me. It the- is really funny. It's really well done because they're interacting with all the stuff in the mall. Yeah, the, the turtles show up, of course. Like, we first see that Ernie Reyes Jr., or uh, what's his character's name? Kiko? Kino. Kino. We, we see that Kino can really hold his own. He knows some martial arts, but... Oh, he knows a lot of martial arts. Yeah. He's basically way outnumbered. Apparently, there's like 30 or 40 dudes wearing pantyhose on their hair, on their heads. Uh, yeah, that was kind of weird because they came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. But who comes swinging in but those turtles? Ah, uh, yeah. Dropping in from the ceiling. And or, right or off the they? bat, you see that things are a little bit off this time around, I will say. Because they aren't using their weapons this time in an yeah. effort to be less violent, but they're still punching people and knocking them out. They're still punching them and kicking them and stuff. Uh, Michelangelo takes some sausages that are linked together and use those, uh, uses them as his nunchucks, which, are nunchucks really that threatening looking? They're not swords. Yeah, which is weird. Like, he has... They have their weapons on them. They're just choosing not to use them. Yeah, which happens throughout the film. It's not just this one scene. Because using the sausages is a fun gag. There's also a change in suits. They've gotten new suits from Jim Henson's uh, studio. Yeah, the the suits in some way are an improvement, but I'm not crazy about how they're lit in this movie. Like, they're they're just better lit in general. I mean, better to say, like, it's just a brighter film. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit brighter green too they kind of clean them up they have better teeth yeah the the servos are instead of being located in the shell i was reading they're now in the actual head Mm -hmm. so their their heads are a little more expressive you see this especially on splinter I, i think that his puppetry definitely improved with this one but because they're better lit, it does seem a little more artificial in the first movie. Yeah, you can kind of tell a little bit more that they're guys in suits. But luckily for the actors, the suits were a lot lighter, like 30 pounds lighter at least. And unfortunately, be- uh, this new Raphael voice is a slightly off. Whereas Josh Pice really took the character seriously, this voice actor seems just kind of like, yeah, he's a sarcastic New Yorker turtle. I got this. Which, okay, this is a this is a question that I had in the first movie too. Because the the brothers, these turtles, have different accents. Even though they all (laughs) supposedly grew up together in New York. Raphael has a New Yorker accent. Michelangelo has, like, a surfer boy California accent. Yeah, he's a full-on, like, surfer dude. But it's like, where did he learn to talk like that? I know. And then the other two just kind of have standard you know, teenage accents of the time. Donatello just sounds like uh, one of the Frog Brothers in The Lost Boys. (laughs) If anything, they should sound like Splinter, who has kind of a cliched old Japanese man voice (laughs) from uh, Kevin Clash. We skipped over, speaking of Splinter, the flashback to how Splinter learned karate. That is amazing. There's a stop motion sequence in the first movie where this rat is doing martial arts moves while he watches his master. And that's how he became a martial arts master himself, enough to teach the Ninja Turtles how to beat the hell out of everybody. Yeah, that's an important discrepancy between the origin in the uh, comics and movies compared to the cartoon because in the cartoon it kind of makes more sense he was a human martial arts master who was turned into a rat whereas 
the comics and movies, it's a rat that watched his master, his human master do martial arts. Yeah. He had this deep love of his human master and just imitated all his moves. And this becomes important because the uh, titular secret of the ooze in this movie, this chemical company, TGRI, is responsible for the radioactive ooze that turned Splinter and the Turtles into their bipedal talking fighting cells. And this is where we learn that the turtles are only 15 years old, which is weird because they seem like they're 30. Yeah, they're now living in April's apartment. April looks completely different now. She's now played by Paige Turco instead of uh, Judith Hoeg. And it's funny because they become very domesticated since the first movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're used to a uh, higher lifestyle now. They h- call pizza whenever they want it. They have supermodel posters up on the wall. They're really just taking over April's apartment. It's nice that they clean up every once in a while, but, like, imagine a burden, the burden. Like, you have a, a hard day of work at this uh, TV news program, and you come home, and these four teenage turtles and a giant rat are flipping around your house, ordering a ton of pizza. Throwing the pizza around. And this is after they were they were kind of the cause of the destruction of her original house. Yeah. A house that was over the vintage resale shop that her dad had, so it destroyed her childhood memories. Yeah, these turtles have been nothing but trouble since April, the moment they showed up in her life. It's also, and they kind of uh, harass her a little bit. They're really into her. They, they want some interspecies love going yeah, on. Yeah, they're definitely interested in April sexually, which brings to <laughs> mind all kinds of, like, turtle-human questions. It was around this same time that there was a Broadway musical, the, I think it was called The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shell, and they were doing these song and dance numbers, and they are on an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show. Oh, God. Some... Horrifically creepy costumes. Yeah, they didn't have their shells, and, uh... And they were wearing jean vests. It was very... It's... These clips are on YouTube, that's where we found them, but it's really uncomfortable because it's these turtles kind of just ogling April at one point and making these really, like, off-color jokes to a room full of children. Including a reference to interspecies or relationships yeah yeah it's it's very strange the relationship because the, you the tell very... oprah was really like why is this happening yeah to me? oprah went on to bigger and better things of course but just the fact that they have pinups of human models at uh, april's apartment yeah. like they're they're not into turtles they're I, into human women i almost think that part of why they have these these like Yo, dude, what's going on? Accents, and then eating lots of pizza and junk food, being kind of messy, having the supermodel poster. That's how they convince you that they're teenagers when they sound very much like 30-some-year-olds. When they finally move out of April's apartment and find a new hideout down in the subway, this, like, old abandoned subway, Lindsay made the comment, like, oh, they don't know how to feed themselves because they just have big bags of potato chips and junk food. Yeah. So that's kind of a teenager thing, too. This makes me wonder, what is Spl- uh, Splinter eating? Is he into all of that junk food like they are? I always assumed he just eats pizza also. Like, a a piece of pizza lands on his head, I think, in the first one. Yeah. I mean, I guess he's a rat. He's not going to be that picky. The, the puppetry in this is still really solid. Like, all of the animatronics and everything. It's a little bit stranger since there's a lot of light on them, but... 
this is important to keep in mind when we later go into the third movie. Huh. And it's not just the turtles this time, because uh, Shredder's back from the dump. We get one of those classic scenes where his hand bursts through the garbage, and he's alive. There's no explanation, though, because we saw his head get crushed. Well, we saw his helmet get crushed. Presumably his head was yeah. in the helmet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not really explained. He's just somehow has been... And it's also not clear how much later after the first movie this is. That's the weird thing. I guess probably it's not that much... There's not much time that's passed because they are still living with April, but it's gotten to the point that she's really sick of them when she gets home from work. And it's hard to age any of these characters since they've all been recast or are missing in the case of Casey Jones. Yeah. I mean, the Ernie Reyes Jr. character is really just kind of a replacement for Casey Jones. Like He's more of like a fun childish kind of he's yeah. like that character's just a super age down yeah Casey Jones. i think part of it too was he was kind of bringing more youthfulness into the movie because april and uh didn't really bring that and the turtles aren't very convincingly teenage so kino um kind of helps bring a more youthful face and voice for the young audience that they're seeking right yeah but um shredder's back and he's pissed and He's somehow tracked down this uh, TGRI company that is responsible for the ooze that made the, uh, the turtles and Splinter into what they are today, which is all just an excuse for these new horrible puppet creations. Which the turtles try to prevent uh, Shredder and the Foot from getting this this mutant ooze or ooze that will turn. They call it like a mutagen, but it's yeah. really just the ooze. You see, we get to see Donatello trying to hack a computer with his three fingers on each hand. <laughs> uh, it doesn't work, obviously. There's a confrontation with them and the foot, even though the foot already stole the ooze. They could have just left, but they decided to be like, hey, by the way, turtles, we got it. Yeah, they left and then they came <laughs> back like 10 minutes later just to show off that they'd stolen it and almost lose it as a result yeah. of their bravado and because they're really into kidnapping as we saw in the last film they they abducted the researcher because essentially shredder's plan is to create his own mutants that he can sick against the turtles because he's so tired of them now that i think about it uh, the plot device for all three of these movies is somebody getting kidnapped Yes. Because Splinter gets kidnapped in the first one. Both the researcher and later, I think, Raphael gets kidnapped. Yeah. And then the third movie is all about going back in time to save April. Yeah, but she's not kidnapped. She's accidentally replaced by a time travel device. But she is being held against her will. Yeah, she yeah. ends up held against her will. All of this ooze stuff is really just an excuse for the Jim Henson creature shop to go nuts on these new monsters called Razor and Toka. And they're totally new. They're unique from the... Because there were two monsters in the cartoon. Well, yeah, there was Bebop and Rocksteady in the cartoon. Probably the comics, too. And those were that was like a, a hog and a rhino. Yeah. Very iconic characters, very big in the lore. But I think that the... Uh, they just weren't able to license them for whatever mm -hmm. reason. So they made up similar characters. They had a wolf and a vulture? Or was a, was it was a snapping turtle. I know <laughs> why you're saying vulture. It, the snapping turtle looks exactly like the... Uh, the Jim Henson Dark Crystal characters. Yeah, the Skeksis, those vulture characters from the Dark Crystal. Hmm. 
Hmm. Oh, uh, man. And really just the, the whole plot of this, I mean, there's barely a plot to this movie. It's really just people get kidnapped the foot says, meet us here for your friend. And then it's just the turtles fighting these monsters over and over again. And in contrast to the first movie, there's no feeling of actual threat or high stakes, really. Even though even though people get kidnapped, you're still kind of like, ah, but it's so silly. Like, every time they hit something, somebody, there's like a boing effect and all kinds of weird sounds that make it a lot less serious. The music is much more fun and upbeat, not as dark and, you know, kind of doing like the rap and rock music that we had in the first movie. Yeah, yeah, the first movie had a lot of MC Hammer, and like, even that's been toned down for this movie, because now it's Vanilla Ice. Like, we've gone oh, to... Geez. Everything about this movie has been a little bit softened in reaction to the, I guess, parent outcry over the violence of the first movie. To the extent that Shredder has these horrible monsters made, and we see how bad it is for the foot, how far they've fallen, because they're essentially doing all of this in a junkyard, and they can't even build a cage for his new monsters. They just put garbage around and then tie, like, tie up the garbage as a makeshift cage. Yeah, even the design of Shredder, you know, he was so scary in the first movie. Like, every angle of his body has some sort of sword or something that could something slice you pointy, open with. yeah. He's just like a human can opener in the first movie, whereas uh, in in the second one, he's he reminds me more of Leslie Nielsen in Surf yeah, Ninja. Like he's just kind of a like he's just kind of a buffoon to the extent that at the end of the movie, during this big climactic fight, when they stumble into a Vanilla Ice concert, which is weird unto itself, Shredder takes some of this ooze himself and turns into Super Shredder. That's basically just a seven-foot-tall version of himself. Yeah. Oh, that Vanilla Ice concert was weird. It's very odd. Uh, he basically is just saying, Go, Ninja! Go, Ninja! Go! He's inspired to create a new song that is just, Go, Ninja! Go, Ninja! Go! Over and over again. Because he can tell that these turtles are ninjas somehow. And the fighting becomes choreographed to the extent that it's really just fight dancing and eventually yeah. just rap dancing. And then just them dancing in unison because they just can, apparently. The These first two movies are just such a charming time capsule of, like, early 90s hip-hop. Like, it's yeah. just so... I mean, it's, it was... Save, like, early 90s save hip-hop that Yeah, it's just, like, bubblegum. Like, it's, it's so charming. But um, one of the other things I was saying was uh, with those monsters he's had made, they're not even threatening at all because we realize they're babies. Like, they, they call Shredder Mama and, and hug him. These monsters are really dumb and childlike to the extent that they defeat them by tricking them into eating these powdered donuts that have this reverse, like, it's basically an antidote for the ooze, an anti-mutagen. They trick these monsters into eating donuts before they fight. Like, they see that this is a big thing that they do. Which, here's an angle that I was thinking while we were watching this. It was never mentioned as a possibility that the turtles and splinters should take this antidote, because really they're... Not their natural, not in their natural form. Why not return to their natural form? Well, like it wasn't even raised as a question. I had that thought too, but I think in sort of a different way. I thought it would have been an interesting thing and kind of a missed opportunity for 
Shredder's plan to get the anti-mutagen to turn them back into the turtles. Yeah. Because then his biggest threat would have been eliminated. Yeah. Like, Splinter and the turtles, like, I feel like everything that they are is from the ooze. I mean, mm -hmm. their intelligence, their personalities. And I think this might have even been covered in the cartoon, but... I was really surprised that it didn't go there. That it just kind of settled for this dumb, like, monster mash. Like, just fighting these monsters instead of really bringing those stakes to the table. Yeah, I think part of it is this idea that Shredder is someone that just wants to create violence and create pain and inflict things on other people instead of coming up with critical solutions to things. But the Shredder of the first film would have been more calculating. It's weird because the Turtles have been declawed in this movie to the point that Super Shredder kills himself by knocking over all the supports for this boardwalk. And yeah, he crushes really... himself. Like, whereas in the movie, it was basically Splinter with an assist from Casey Jones that seemed to definitively kill this character. And that was taking action to kill him, right? Like, that was a very pointed action to kill him off. Yeah. And this in this movie, it's so soft and cartoonish. They don't even, like, Donatello doesn't even use his staff to knock heads. With each movie sort of being a reaction to the previous one, I feel like the next movie in this series kind of goes back to them using their weapons and stuff, but it's retains just kind of the goofy no stakes action of this yeah which is what something that you had mentioned was you felt like each movie was a reaction to the prior one yeah and these movies came out boom 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 90 91 92 like in the case of the second one there was less than a year between the two. Oh wow i didn't realize and that. so like they are really immediately learning i guess the lessons from the from the response to the previous one. Yeah, except not a lot enough lessons cuz the third one wouldn't have existed if they'd actually learned anything. Yeah, let's talk about this third one because this is one that was more a fixture of your childhood than yeah. mine. Like I said, I only really saw it once and I didn't remember much about it. For me, the things that I really remembered from this movie were you get to see a much softer side of Raphael and I remember that kind of having an impression on me when I was a kid just kind of seeing his character going from that sort of angry I'm against the world, the world's against me kind of thing to being very caring and sweet toward a child which was unexpected and then um, there's a little bit of romance in this one. Yeah, I mean this is a huge departure I mean I, I likened it to uh, when we were watching it, it's sort of like the army of darkness uh, is, in a actually. way of this series I mean, Army of Darkness is a much better movie, and it I think is. a much better entry to its series. Whereas 1 and 2 were kind of in the same wheelhouse, the third movie goes way off the beaten path into this time travel plot. Yeah, and I think that was another thing that appealed to me as a kid was time travel and this idea yeah, it's, of traveling to a totally different place. It's much more fantastical than mm -hmm. the first two. Um, but let's take another break to talk about some, some trailers that we got. At the beginning of this tape, we're immediately shown this awesome soundtrack for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, which oh, I've been yeah. waiting to... I think this is the first time we've had a soundtrack advertised, because that's something that I always remember from VHS tapes, is they're really pushing the, the soundtrack mm -hmm. on you out of the gate. I guess this might be the first time. What's funny is there's no memorable songs for me from this, whereas the, the first one had the MC Hammer stuff, the second mm -hmm. one had Go Ninja Go... 
This is to me is like mostly instrumental, like Japan type riffs. Not advertising the soundtrack for the second one was just a kindness to parents everywhere, so they <laughs> wouldn't have to hear "Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go" on repeat. Yeah, that's that's a rough song. And in keeping with the theme of having both ads for movies and ads for products. We have a Hanes commercial, as in Hanes underwear and shirts. And what was interesting about this one was they were really young kids. Like, the kids in this ad were maybe five years old. Yeah, not since Double Double Toil and Trouble did we have ads aimed at such a young demographic. Yeah. This is not far removed from that, just because we have little kids showing off their underwear. And our final ad shows that they really know their audience, because it's a trailer for <laughs> surf ninjas oh yeah this seems to be an ad narrated by uh michelangelo it's yeah, got like a california was... surfer dude basically recapping the entire plot of surf ninjas yeah. like hey dudes wouldn't it be crazy if there are these <laughs> ninjas coming at you out of nowhere and you gotta you're starting to see things on your sega handheld <laughs> like it, the narration was really bad yeah and what's funny is both the haynes ad and this surf ninjas trailer have this same editing device that I guess is really popular oh, in the yeah. early 90s where they replay and reverse the same few frames with a record scratch. So it's like people are kind of like almost vibrating because it's the same clip being played over. And it's really jarring and yeah. bizarre. I guess it's just to show you how radical what you're seeing is, <laughs> whether it be surf ninjas or underwear. But going into this movie, there were just so many things they did wrong with this one. <laughs> and the thing about it was that it felt like the budget was much smaller than it actually was. Yeah, you know, this movie, I think... The, the budget was increased for the second one, and this was slightly less than the second one, but about the same... But a huge thing here is that they, for some reason, stopped using the Jim Henson Creature Company and switched to this company called All Effects Company, meaning the turtle designs and Splinter, just something is really off about them. Splinter was a dog. Like, that, they literally, I feel like they repurposed a dog puppet. And you lose Kevin Clash's voice, too. So it's like a dog hand puppet, like, voiced by someone doing a really bad impersonation doing of a, a Japanese man. <laughs> like but it was very... a bad impersonation of Kevin Clash's Japanese yeah. man. Yeah, you know, this is a strange, like, give and take of the first two movies. Because we have the April from the second movie back... But we also have Corey Feldman and Elias Cotez as Casey Jones back from the first movie. So you kind of, it gives you hope. I had a little bit of hope going into this. Yeah, and, you know, I was kind of intrigued by the time travel thing just because it was so different than what we had seen before. Yeah. And this, this going in, I was completely divorced from nostalgia. Like, I was able to just view this objectively because I didn't really remember it. Yeah, I was and, not divorced from nostalgia. It was odd watching this. Yeah, this is a strange entry in the series. And I see why it was the last one that they did. Yeah, there was no going forward from this movie. So right off the bat, we open in Japan circa 1603, but you pointed out, being the Japanese scholar that you are, that it's more like the 1750s, given the things that they're 
kind of talking about and well, doing. Well, because, like, the hand, they had handguns and stuff. But it's still, the thing that was weird about it was they were accurate and inaccurate simultaneously. Mm. Like, six, the early 1600s, they were developing a, a, a sort of relationship with Europe. And if it was later than that, the country would have been closed because they ended up rejecting kind of entry of foreigners at a certain point. So they kind of had it right, but then they had handguns, which I don't think handguns were around until the eight, the 18th century, right? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I looked, I tried to look about. it up, but it was kind of hard to tell. They were saying there was pretty, it was pretty much what we think of as the handgun wasn't until at least a hundred years later. Yeah, like sort of the, the flintlock pistol and they have like yeah. the flintlock muskets and cannons. Like that seems, I don't know, I may be wrong about that. It feels a little too early for that to be in such common usage. Yeah. The awkward thing was that people were wrapping their clothes the wrong way. So they were wearing their clothes. Like when you wear um, traditional Japanese clothing, you're supposed to put a certain side over but they were they were having the right side on top, which is what you do for the dead. Yeah. That's burials. That's so funny. And also interesting is they shot all of this medieval Japan stuff in Oregon. And it yeah. really shows. Like, it's very green and lush. These movies You can are... see the logging, the Oregon logging <laughs> yeah. that Oregon's so famous for. That kind of added to my enjoyment of the movie, though, since we had just <laughs> been to Oregon. And it was, I don't know, it kind of made it sort of weird and fun. Like, it wouldn't have been quite the same if they'd just done it in Canada like every other movie does. Yeah. But yeah, we get sort of this teaser in Japan. Uh, we introduce the uh, kind of some of our main players here. There's kind of this father-son rift. We're introduced to this castle, Norinaga Castle. Uh, we're introduced to, like, I guess these traders from uh, England. Uh-huh. But then we cut back to the turtles. And at first it seems like nothing much has changed. They've still got their same subway hideout. They've created a ton of art and stuff yeah they've created all these different um figures out of trash i they, guess they've really gotten into that bohemian new york art scene that you see in like martin scorsese movies and things like that but then right off the bat these turtles look weird they look really weird they're bright they're kind of bright green they have these spots all over them like really pronounced like freckles that weren't in the movies mm -hmm. they're kind of, and their mouths are really jerky they kind of look like halloween costumes of yeah. the turtle costumes from the other movies yeah the thing that kept distracting me was whenever they would talk their heads would kind of jerk around from the mouth moving i think yeah it's i could never get over how different these turtles looked and again like when i was a kid i didn't notice at all but splinter especially just looks like garbage in this movie <laughs> and i could never get over it yeah it was bad and the thing where you where i realized while wow, they've really given up was there was a part where splinter was talking and i realized <laughs> and i realized they think they hadn't given themselves enough frames to have him say everything so they just have it going forward and then they reverse it and it goes in reverse for a second <laughs> and then they just have the voiceover playing and then it just cuts to the next person talking yeah, and again, like, it's this is really such... really weird. This may not be so bad, but this is the most brightly lit movie of the three. It felt like TV lighting. And, and given the fact that most of this takes place either in medieval Japan, where things are lit up by candlelight, 
or in the sewer where there is like very like haphazard uh lighting that i guess they've rigged themselves like it's so brightly lit that it feels like a sitcom to the point that when kesey jones just kind of walks onto the scene you almost expect canned applause like it feels like he's the special guest star on like this live action tv show that's like a (laughs) spin-off of the other two movies like This budget is not on the screen, or maybe it just went to getting all these locations in Oregon. And building the sets, because they were having to try and build feudal Japan. I mean, I guess it's also sort of a Back to the Future 3 thing. Like, they feel like in the third movie, they've really got to mix it up and take these characters where we haven't seen them before. Which, that was one of the critics had called them out on it, because they were just, because apparently this was a trend for sequels where people, where they were doing time travel. Yeah, I guess it sort of was. Because it came after Army of Darkness, it came after Back to the Future and that sort of thing. Like, I think they were saying, the the criticism was just something like, can you come up with something better than, ooh, they traveled back in time. Yeah, and and so we're about five minutes into the movie when April just kind of shows up with all these presents for her turtle friends. Was she on vacation or something? I I didn't quite catch it because I was... I think still so distracted was, yeah. by how awful they look. It's really jarring because first we're in feudal Japan slash Oregon. Then we cut to this strange TV sitcom version of the Turtles. And then April shows up and she's cut off all her hair for some reason. And she's just giving out gifts. And one of them is this ancient Japanese scepter that ends up being the device that sends them back in time. They were calling it a scepter, but it looks like a lantern. Yeah, it's like a lantern It's a lantern scepter. with a long handle on it and almost immediately april inadvertently sends herself back in time yeah prompting these turtles to have to figure out how they're gonna get back and save april transported in her place because they figure out that you what was it something of the same mass has (laughs) to travel from the past to, for the person in the future to travel to their spot, I guess. And of so course, she switched like, with a prince. Yeah, of course, it's like Donatello is somehow able to hook up his like Commodore sixty four computer to the scepter and yeah. like figure out how time travel works. Yeah, so he, so she gets switched out with the evil Daimyo's son. The turtles are able to switch places with four of like these honor guard warriors, but those four go back and have to be babysat by Casey Jones and Splinter for the rest of the movie. <laughs> Which is essentially just introducing them to hockey. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a real like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure sort of thing where there's this whole subplot where Casey Jones is just like teaching them about hockey and stuff. It's really out of place with the rest of it's the movie. So, it's so random, too, how they decide which of the Japanese people speaks English. Because when they travel back in time, because at first I was trying to remember the movie, and I was just kind of like, are they just going to understand, like, there's some kind of weird magical thing happening where everybody understands each other? And then we realize, no, they have trade with the Europeans, so that's why some of them speak English and some of them don't. And so you have these warrior guys who travel into New York, and these four guys are just chatting in Japanese the whole time, but then occasionally saying things like, hockey! <laughs> yeah, you know, this really just feels like a rushed movie to yeah. me. Because everything about it, like, even down to this plot, like, once they get there, they quickly figure out where April is, and they get involved in this kind of needlessly complicated struggle between rival 
bands like there's kind of the villagers yeah. and the with i mean it makes sense because the time period they picked is like the warring states period so that's why they have this conflict between the two groups and mm-hmm. they're trying to the daimyo is trying to just remind everybody of his power over them but then you have this romeo and juliet angle yeah that's all very strange to me which is really hard to follow because you never see these two characters together because kenshin the the daimyo's son is sent to new york so he spends the whole movie in new york and then the love of his life is this woman in the village who uh is just kind of trying to get by and keep her family alive and michelangelo is crushing on her hard oh yeah he's he in love with her get with that <laughs> oh yeah he's in love with her also the sexuality of the turtles has been amped up even further there's a moment where <laughs> april is like pulling off like the the fabric on her legs just kind of an excuse for her to mince around in a mini skirt for the yeah. movie and no joke the turtles go swing and then make a gesture <laughs> as if they're going erect. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable, especially since this has been aged down even further, in a way. This is something we overlooked when we talked about the second movie, though. Even though they aged it down to such an extreme extent, they kept throwing in jokes that were clearly for the adults because kids won't get wouldn't get them. Like the turtles made jokes about Ralph Nader. The Ralph Nader thing was weird. I mean, at that point, he was best known for like consumer advocacy, like yeah. seatbelts. So it's like, why would kids know about Ralph Nader? Like yeah. maybe if it came out in two thousand, kids would like hipper kids would know that oh, he's the one who blew it for Al Gore, but. <laughs> At that time, like, there's no way kids would understand what these turtles are talking about. Yeah. But yeah, we have this kind of weird mix of childishness, but then adult-level jokes. There are some pluses here. The turtles are using their weapons again. I feel like... They got into intense fighting. There's some choreographed stuff on horses that was kind of impressive. Yeah, I feel like the the action is taking itself a little bit more seriously. Like, you might actually feel... The sense of danger is kind of returned, but Mm -hmm. not... It's somewhere between one and two. If one is, like, this hard-edged allegory of gang warfare and two is, like, a Saturday morning cartoon, like, this is somewhere between there. Yeah, I mean, More on the side of two, though. Yeah, Michelangelo does run into a burning building, though. Yeah, and then Leonardo performs CPR, basically invents CPR. Yeah. Which, Which everybody, all the villagers were super disturbed to see this big turtle monster making out with a young child. Yeah. Because that's what they saw, because they didn't know what... This demon, they keep calling the turtles demons, so imagine seeing your dead son's soul sucked out by a demon and then he rises from the dead that's what they saw which this this time travel wasn't an invention of the movie makers this happened in the comic i believe right oh really i think i think there was something to do with time travel in the comic but it might not have been anything like this I mean, it does, of all the times to send them back to, it does make sense to send them back to feudal Japan. I mean, since they are ninjas and they borrow a lot of things from Japan. This is the movie where they don't ever eat pizza. Michelangelo tries to make pizza using a smith's fire. (laughs) <laughs> but he overbakes it and decides it's a frisbee, so he introduces them to frisbees. And, you know, I know that this is something that's talked about all the time, but consequences of time travel. 
Yeah. Let's talk about how much they might have changed these four giant turtles just bashing their way through feudal Japan. Well, but the thing is, Japan does have a legend of of um, turtle creatures called Kappa that they kept calling them Kappa in the movie. I mean, either you believe that in our history these turtles were always there. I mean, there were some ancient scrolls to kind of back that up. Kind of Evil Dead 2 style where Ash shows up in these old mm-hmm. scrolls. Either you believe that they are always there or they completely altered the course of history. <laughs> because whole lineages are, you know, either wiped out or preserved by the actions of these turtles. And at the end of the movie, Michelangelo wants to stay doing untold amount of damage to the past. Which is kind of funny because there's this moment where she's like, you have Mitsu, who is the one that's in love with the daimyo's son. And at the end of the movie, they're supposed to go back and Michelangelo's saying, no, 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 I'm staying here with you. And she says, but if you stay here, Kenshin can't come back. And so there's this kind of conflict for a second where he, you can tell he's go, he's thinking in his head, that man doesn't matter. I'm your man now. Yeah, it's kind of like, step aside, bro. <laughs> the lady has made her choice. There's also a kind of weird thing because they develop this relationship between her and Michelangelo and between um, Raphael and her younger brother, Yoshi. And it's kind of weird because Michelangelo is the one that saved Yoshi from a burning building. And then Leonardo is the one that performs CPR. So Raphael had almost the least to do with all of that. Yeah, it's it's so weird that they didn't just decide to have Raphael be the one to run into the building. This is the only movie in the series that had a writer-director. Like, Stuart Gillard both wrote the script and directed, and there's no other screenwriters uh, credited, so I can only assume that either the script wasn't that great or... There were a lot of studio notes that kind of messed with this because I feel like something's kind of missing in that relationship, the Raphael-Yoshi thing. They develop this close connection because Raphael sees Yoshi being kind of violent towards other kids and tells him, hey, calm down, don't be angry. And then he kind of goes, wait, am I the one saying that? Because he realizes he's not really the one to correct someone acting out in anger. Yeah. And that's that's their spiritual connection, but it's still a little odd. A lot of things don't work in this movie, but a big one for me is besides the effects and the story and a lot of other things... The villains are so lame in this. They're really lame. And we don't have the shredder. We don't have the foot. They're not even mentioned. We don't have any cool creatures out there like uh, whatever the Bebop and Rocksteady characters. Oh, uh, uh, Razor and Toka. Instead, we have Norinaga. The Daimyo. And we have Stuart Wilson playing this guy, Walker, who's kind of the main villain. He's like... He's the worst one, yeah. Yeah, he's sort of this, you know, cliched British villain. Maybe if they'd gotten Tim Curry to play this character, because he he reminds me a tiny bit of, like, the Cardinal and uh, the Three Musketeers. Actually, that's a good comparison, yeah. I can see that. I mean, in the sense, like, he is overseeing, like, this grim, oppressive world where people are in cages and tortured. Like, there is a little bit of that darkness, but... You never really think of the villain as much of a threat. Like, certainly not the way that the Shredder was. Mm -hmm. I don't know. The gangs, both the English warriors and the the Japanese warriors, they're they're kind of faceless. And you never really get to know them that well. Whereas, 
I felt like, especially in the first movie, The Foot, I really understood who these kids were. Yeah, I was just looking at the English guys thinking they were really gross and probably going to die of syphilis. Yeah, yeah, I sort of had that thought, too. If you just wait around long enough, they'll die off from some sort of plague. Probably the weirdest thing that we haven't mentioned yet was that Casey existed in both the past and the present. Well, Elias Cortez plays two different characters. Yes, that's like what they, I mean. They look very different. Yeah, they. but they, what is it, April kind of develops this connection with one of the Englishmen because he looks like Casey. Which is odd because we've only seen the other actress who played April O'Neil bond with uh, Casey Jones in the first movie. So I had to have that moment where it's like, wait, how does she know about Casey Jones? <laughs> but I remember that it's just, just a different actress, but it's the same character. So it was just kind of odd. And why they made that choice to have him play both roles, it didn't really do much. His character in both the past and the present didn't really accomplish much or add much. I kind of feel like he could have been written out and it wouldn't have changed the movie much. Yeah. The end of this movie is pretty predictable. I mean, they finally decide to go back home. There's a brief moment where it seems like Michelangelo didn't make it back, but of course he did. And then for a moment, Michelangelo is sad, but... This awkward, weird splinter puppet cheers him up almost immediately by putting a lampshade on his head and doing an Elvis impersonation. Which is kind of funny because Michelangelo is being so melodramatic, I'll never laugh again. Yeah. And then he immediately laughs because he clearly was not that at attached to Mitsu. I don't know how you were as a kid, but Michelangelo was my favorite turtle when I was really little just because yeah. he's kind of the, the party animal, the fun one. But as I get older... Raphael is clearly the best one. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, which is kind of a bummer for this third movie because Raphael's voice is awful here. Because he, he, they keep recasting him in each movie. In this one, he sounds even less like a New Yorker and more like, I don't know, Carl from the Aqua Teen Hunger Force. <laughs> like, he's got this really gross Jersey accent. Like, hey, kid, don't worry. It's gonna be all right. Like, yeah. it's really gross. And it's like, what happened to you, Raphael? It just doesn't work. Uh, you know, and I, I feel like the first movie was correct in, in just focusing on that character because he's just kind of the most relatable of the bunch. I just realized there's this thing at the end where our English villain Walker is about to die or he's trying to escape. And so he remembers his pet bird in the cage and tries to run away with his bird. And I was just thinking, why did they add that detail? Why did, yeah. why did that need to be? Like, were they trying to humanize him? His whole character did nothing for me. I think so many he... things they did in this. I just keep wondering why. And to follow up such an iconic villain as Shredder, I mean, honestly, all of the villains in the previous movies were better than this guy. Like, I liked his sidekicks in the other movies. I like just the random foot members. I thought they had more personality than this guy. Yeah, it just didn't work. And then they made the daimyo so silly because he gets his hair chopped short and he has a giant bell fall on him and the cannonball shoot there's a cannonball that breaks that up and what is it kind of sets his hair aflame and stuff it's yeah and you already talked about it but that fall into the water and then disappearing oh, god i don't know how i never noticed that 
I never took note of that. I was just like, oh, now he's dead. That's one of the worst effects shots I've ever seen. Like, it would have been okay if they just cut away, like, cut to a reaction shot of the turtles. And so still had you, the splash sound. Like, you, they could have gotten away with that. Yeah. But this was so weird. That was odd. All right, so as we always do on this show, let's, let's take it for each movie. One, oh. two, and three. Buy it, rent it, or tape over it. Let's let's start with number one. Start with number one. I say buy it because it's interesting. It's fun. It's kind of it spans different age groups. It's got really great puppeteer work. Um, I still it kind of still hits at my nostalgia. So it was fun to watch. I'm gonna say buy it too. This movie's really held up for me. I was prepared to just sort of. I, I was prepared for it to be good, but I liked it a lot more than I remembered, especially after seeing the other two. <laughs> um, I I like kind of the grittiness to it. I appreciate that it appeals to multiple ages, and uh, Raphael's a great character. The foot is very interesting. Like it's a it's a pretty strong movie. And then uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 Secret of the Ooze. Start- what did you think? Yeah, this starts to get harder because this was the one that I always would think of. I kind of conflated the first one and the second one in my head and, and how I remembered the movies. Yeah, I have a lot of nostalgia for this one too. But I have to say rent it. Just because having seen the three in sequential order, it's kind of hard to have this one follow the first one now as an adult because I judge it so much harder. But it was still really fun to kind of relive those scenes that I loved so much as a kid. Yeah, I'm right there with you. This is a rent it. I mean, if I didn't have so much nostalgia, it'd probably be a tape over it. Yeah. Like, I'm kind of on the fence. But just, I mean, I think that there's enough fun things. And Mm -hmm. the Jim Henson puppetry is so cool. Like, I forgive a lot of this movie. Yeah. Yeah, for some reason, I'm much more forgiving of the second one. So we're going to go to the third one. (laughs) Yeah, I have a feeling we're on the same page on this one, too. (laughs) The third one is tape over it and set it on fire. (laughs) Okay, maybe don't set it on fire. Throw it over a cliff into the ocean. Yeah, it's it's a tape over it. What what really bugs me about this one is I, I really feel like there's a contempt for the audience that there wasn't in the other two like i really feel like oh we don't need to pay those jim henson people again the kids won't know the difference like the puppetry's awful uh there's lack of cotton continuity like april's outfit changes between cuts we have splinter suddenly going backwards for a second like yeah it's it's just a rushed sloppy movie and with the exception of army of darkness i don't think it's a good idea to introduce time travel to these things yeah you know i i just don't know if i'm really gonna remember this one super well i think it's gonna recede into my memory the way it did when i was a kid it really makes me question the child mind (laughs) because i just i had such a fondness for this one and watching it again was just odd i haven't had an experience like this since man of the house yeah and i was really prepared to embrace this because i i had no baggage going in I didn't really know what people thought of it, to be honest. I I just knew that they were going back in time, and I was prepared to... I was fully on board for this, but it just bludgeoned me with how (laughs) rough the production values were. They just clearly did not give a shit. Yeah, and... They paid the price because these movies made exponentially less with each one of these. Yeah. Uh, The first one was a big, unexpected blockbuster hit. 
uh, the second one made much less, and the third one made much less than that one. Um, and we, we've had some other spins on these characters since. I think mm-hmm. there's a CGI movie that came out in uh, the, the mid-2000s. and there was, one, there was a CGI movie. I saw that one, actually. Sarah they had, Michelle Gellar, I think, is I the voice of April O'Neil. Buffy is in it. Um, and then there's the Michael Bay bullshit that's around right now, yeah. where Megan Fox is April O'Neil. I, I have not seen it, so I'm I can't not really... I'm not see it. I, you know, I really just don't have the interest in seeing it, and a friend of mine, uh, works for ILM. He was working on the effects for the, the I guess, the 2014 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and one day Michael Bay strolled in. He was looking at one of what one of the artists was doing. He was trying to make like these nostrils less weird on one of the turtles, just as sort of a test. And and like it was like like a couple months, or maybe even less than a couple months, until the movie was due to come out. And you know, turtles don't even have nostrils. He was just trying to you know do this thing on a sort of a lark. And Michael Bay was like, "Yeah, do that." And so um, immediately, it was an all hands on deck changing all the nostrils for these turtles oh my people God. were clocking huge overtime they were abandoning other projects just to completely redo the cgi why did they have nostrils in the first place were they going for more of a voldemort look i don't know but i all i've seen are like the trailers for these new ones there's a there's a second one of this cycle coming out this year um and the the turtles just look awful like they just they barely they look, look kinda, like turtles to me they looked creepy not necessarily awful because i could see what they were going through uh, going for with the design but they just look kind of creepy they it didn't kinda, look like heroes it kind of looks like if you took my plastic michelangelo figurine from when i was growing up if you took an action figure and set it on fire <laughs> that's oh. what these turtles look like they just have kind of like melted features and Aww. It it bums me out that uh, the artists of ILM work so hard to produce something so gross. Yeah, for the 3D one that I saw that was from, I don't even know how long ago that came out. I watched it with my brother and we were all kind of disappointed by it because we had a little bit of hope because Sarah Michelle Gellar was in it and we were all big Buffy fans, but it... I watched it with very low expectations, so it entertained, I guess, but it just wasn't very good. I don't have much of an interest in checking out the new stuff. I mean, we were talking about this with friends. I'm, I'm waiting for the day there where they decide to take the massive Hollywood budgets and turn it back into practical effects and puppets and stuff. It'd be kind of a cool day to see that come back into vogue. Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely like to see that. We saw a little bit of that with the new Star Wars, but I'd like it to go even further because... Even when these turtles looked their worst in the third movie, they were easily more charming than any CGI creature. I, I don't know. That third movie, with their heads jerking okay, when they talked, okay. that was a little weird. That's, that's uh, <laughs> hyperbole, but I, I stand by the sentiment. All right, Sean, we just covered three movies. What's the next episode of Tapeheads? <clears throat> well, I want to do a horror movie, and as tempted as I am to push three horror movies on you, I think this is... <laughs> I think this is sort of a once in a blue moon thing, so I'm you just going to... go nuts and pick the Halloween series. <laughs> Don't tempt me. Uh, you know, I really want to do sort of a creature movie. Um, okay. Having seen something, uh, this, sort of, this series sort of got me in the mood for some puppetry, and I want to introduce you to my favorite werewolf movie, a little movie called 
An American Werewolf in London. Oh. That's something I've always wanted to see, but I just haven't gotten around to watching it. Yeah, there's very few good werewolf movies out there for some reason, but this is one of them. I think it's the very best. Okay, that sounds good. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can find more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes on our website, tapeheadspodcast.com. If you have any questions, please send them our way at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, We'd love it if you gave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It helps support us. Well, that's it for this radical, super long episode of Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. Dudes. (laughs) 